Heavenly Father, we give you thanks and we give you praise for the opportunity that we have um, to once again dive into your word. Lord, I pray that we would be women who are um, learning today in quietness and submission, sitting at your feet, Lord Jesus. I pray that you would help us to have a spirit of humility and um, that we would be changed through what we see in your word. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so if you could imagine with me that at the beginning of Bible study, we started with a very blank art canvas, okay? Big blank canvas. And each week, as we have been working our way through the letter of Timothy, we've been painting on this canvas with broad brush strokes. And what is beginning to emerge is the portrait that God's, of God's design and plan for his church how it is to be structured, what its purposes are, how the congregants are to behave when gathered for worship, and what the worship service is to be like. But here we are, we're in the middle of painting this portrait of the church, and we're given a portrait of those that God has called to serve as leaders. So this is our focus for today. We previously have been painting with broad brush strokes, but now, this week, we're gonna zoom in to just a single little section of the portrait and focus on drawing with much finer instruments. We're gonna draw two portraits of two kinds of leaders that is defined in the scripture. We're gonna draw a portrait of elders and overseers, one, and deacons, okay? So that's my plan for tonight. And we're gonna do it this way. I have three steps in my painting project. First, we're going to pencil in an outline, and in that pencil outline, we're going to um, look at the biblical terms. Um, we're going to get the historic context for those terms. Then we're going to add a little shading to the portrait, and in the shading part, we're going to talk about the biblical responsibilities of each office. And then, lastly, we're going to add some color to our portrait, and in the color portion, we're going to talk about the biblical qualifications for the men who are called to fill each of these roles. All right, gets a little bit technical, a little bit detailed. We're gonna dive into a lot of Greek. So please bear with me. Hopefully by the end, we'll have a beautiful portrait of a godly leader, okay? All right, so first, let's sketch out the outline for an office, the office of overseer and elder. Now there are two main Greek words used in the New Testament to describe those who God has called to oversee the local church. The first one is presbyters and is translated elder. So whenever you see elder in the scriptures, that's the word presbyter. Then the second word is the word that's in our text in 1 Timothy chapter 3 and it's episkopos, which is translated overseer or bishop, or sometimes superintendent. Now there's another word that is sometimes used, maybe like once or twice in the New Testament, always in reference to the function of the elder overseer, and that's the word, Greek word poimen, which is the word shepherd, which we have translated in our English, pastor. So the word pastor, elder, overseer, these are all one office, words, different use, words that are used throughout scripture to define one office. 
So it is very easy for us to read the scriptures and, our, and put on the scriptures our understanding or our context of what a pastor is in 2023. But I don't want us to put a, our cultural understanding of pastor onto the text. I want to lift out, I want to excavate out of the text, out of the scriptures, what God's portrait is of an overseer or an elder or a deacon. And so that we can be conformed to that picture versus the one that we have maybe in our contemporary culture, which may not be exactly biblical. So when Paul writes using the words presbyters or episcopos, he did not pull these words out of a vacuum. They did not make these words up specifically for the church. These words have a long and rich history, both within Judaism and in secular society. So they had significance to the people 2,000 years ago. That rich history will help us to understand what scripture means, what scripture is defining for this particular office. So the word presbyters, which we translate elder. Eldership is one of the most ancient offices within the church. The Jews, it comes from the Jewish, from Israel's history. The Jews had their elders traced all the way back in Israel's history to Moses. All the way back to when the children of Israel were in the wilderness, Sinai, and Moses was overwhelmed by all of the responsibility that he had in leading this people. And so he called 70 men to help him in the task of overseeing and caring for the people in that 40-year wandering. And that's the original understanding or view of elders throughout history, throughout Jewish history, every synagogue had their elders. They were the real leaders of the Jewish community. They presided over the workings of the synagogues. They administered rebuke if necessary, discipline if needed. They settled disputes. They exercised a fatherly oversight over the spiritual and material affairs of every Jewish community. Outside the Jewish communities in secular society, they also had eldership. And I'm just going to give you one example. In Rome, 2,000 years ago, Parliament was called the Senate, which comes from the word senex, which means old man. So Senate is an assembly of elders, which that just kind of made me chuckle just a little bit when I think about our own Senate, and I feel like that's an assembly of old people. <laughs> so the ancient context, elder was a word to describe an official ruling body of men who oversaw communities, synagogues, and even nations. Okay, keep that, hold that in your mind. The second word, episkopos, which we translate bishop or overseer, we see that in the Septuagint, which is the Greek version of the Old Testament. The Old Testament was written in Hebrew, but then they translated it into Greek for the time of when Jesus and the apostles were living. They, they would have been working out of the Septuagint. And the Greek Old Testament uses this word to describe those who were taskmasters for the public works and the public building schemes in 2 Chronicles chapter 34. That would have been an overseer. The Greeks 
um, also used it to describe men appointed to go out from their founding cities to regulate the affairs of a newly established colony in a distant place. The Romans would use it to describe special delegates that were appointed by the king or the emperor to see that the laws he had laid down were actually carried out. So the term overseer, once again, we learned two things. They had oversight over some area or sphere of work, and they had responsibility to some higher power or authority. Keep that in your mind as we, look at the, as we think about our um, study today. The third word that is um, used to talk about um, this office of overseer is poimain, which I had mentioned earlier, meaning shepherd. Um, but I'm going to talk about that in the responsibilities, in the part where we talk about the responsibilities of the pastors. So all of these words themselves in their historic context shed light on what God is calling pastors to be and to do as overseers in local church contexts. Modern scholarship is pretty unanimous that these words are used interchangeably, um, meaning for meaning the same thing. Inevitably, out of a body of elders, one man would rise up to become the leader, and that would be, we would see that as the overseer. It would be, um, he would be a leader among equals, so it's not like he has more authority than the body of elders, but he was the one who had risen up, kind of taking the front of the helm and leading the elders um, as one among equals. And so that's where we get the idea of a body of elders with an overseer over that. So, all right, a lot of details in that, right? Are you still with me? Okay, so our outline of the pastor is complete. We understand the meaning and significance of this word to the ancient mind, right? It's a ruling body of men who oversee local churches and are accountable to God himself. Let's begin to add some shading and form to our outline by looking at how scripture defines what the responsibilities of this body of elders is to be. We're going to cover four things. The first responsibility that is um, under the eye of the overseer or the elders is the teaching responsibility in the church. One of the qualifications that we see in our passage today in uh, 1 Timothy chapter 3 is that they must be able to teach. So pastors are given the the qualification of teaching and the responsibility of teaching the congregation. This is teaching of the word of God. They are to regularly be communicating sound doctrine and how that doctrine, how the truth of scripture is to affect and change the lives of those who are listening. First Timothy 4.11, Paul says to Timothy, command and teach these things. In verse 13, he says, devote yourself to the public reading of scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. And exhortation is to strongly encourage, urge someone to do something. In Titus, Paul writes to Titus and he says um, of, of an overseer, he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also rebuke those who would contradict it. So the role, the function, the responsibility of an elder is to teach the church, 
to bring the word of God to bear on the lives of the people entrusted to their care. He's to rightly divide the word of truth. And in teaching and preaching the truth, he is also rebuking the false teachers that would lead to destruction. So with truth, the elders are supposed to teach the word to the people of God. The second responsibility that they have that we see in Scripture is the elders are to lead the church, lead the congregation. Just in the same way a husband is to lead and manage his own household well, so the elders are to manage and rule the household of God. And this is why it tells us in 1 Timothy 3 that if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he ever care for the household of God? In 1 Timothy 5.17, it says, Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. And so there is a sense that the pastors, the elders, the overseers are ruling, overseeing the management of the church. And that includes a myriad of tasks, business meetings, just the function. They oversee and make sure that the staff is working properly. I mean, the list could go on and on and on. We don't have the time to get into all of that. But they are to oversee the function and operation of the church. They are to do it well. They are to do it with care. They are to do it with a sense of responsibility that they are going to be standing before God and held to account for how they rule over the household of God. And I think it's appropriate to take a moment to pause at this point in time to reflect on the fact that so many of us in this room may have been impacted by churches and church structures where there's been abuse of that authority. And we just need to honestly acknowledge that that has happened, that it is happening to this day in our culture. Um, An abuse of power that comes from the pulpit is spiritually damaging to the souls of those that are under that power. Truthfully, those of us who have been impacted by that still can carry scars for many, many years. And it's very tempting when you've been in a place where there's been an abuse of power, it's very tempting to be reactionary to that. To throw away everything. To throw away everything that's biblical. To throw away everything that even remotely seems to be like authority. Some try to restructure the church using human wisdom and methods to create a church that has no authority at all in a way to handle and avoid abuse. But here's the thing. Abuse happens regardless of structure. Why? Because abuse comes from the heart. It's not a structural problem. It's a heart problem. It's not God's establishment of authority structures that are the problem. It's the heart of those who are in positions of authority Which, by the way, is why God so meticulously and carefully laid out the qualifications for the men who were to fill this office. We need to turn to scripture as a response both for healing the effects of spiritual abuse, but also to understand what biblical authority is actually supposed to look like 
An abuse of power is a distortion of what God's word teaches about authority. Scripture makes it clear that the authority that is given to the office of overseer and elder is not domineering or harsh. It is not authoritarian, but rather those who oversee God's household are first and foremost men under authority. They're under the authority of the chief overseer, Jesus, and he holds them accountable. To rule well and to rule well is to rule like he did. To rule well is to rule like Jesus, who is humble and gentle, full of grace and truth, and who was willing to wash the feet of his own disciples on the eve of his own crucifixion. Remember in John 13, Jesus, the Last Supper, taught his disciples what it meant to lead with authority in his kingdom. John tells us that when he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done for you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for I am. If I then, your Lord and your teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I've given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. So do you hear what Jesus is telling the disciples? He's saying, I'm your Lord. I'm your teacher. He's the son of God. But I'm also washing your feet. This is what it looks like to lead. I did this so that you would know what it means to lead. To lead in God's kingdom, to lead like Jesus, our king, is to lead in humility, in serving, and in washing feet. The posture of humility adorns a godly leader. God's word has the answers to what it means to lead. And it also reveals what to do if you are under an ungodly leader. Ungodly, ungodly leaders can be confronted. They can be confronted and they should be confronted. They are not above being held accountable. There is no such thing as the phrase, you shall not touch the Lord's anointed. That is a man-made, made-up phrase. We are to confront and it needs to be done again rightly with respect, with honor, with witnesses. But they can and should be confronted by God's word and God's people. And if they don't repent, then your responsibility is finished and you can leave that church. Find a church that is faithful to God's word, being led by men who are not perfect. There will never be a perfect situation but they would be men who are seeking to faithfully serve God, who are submitted to God's word. Now, I'm sure that there's so much more that I could say that can be said on this topic, but for now, let's continue on. So we've seen that the responsibilities for elders is a teaching responsibility. They're called to oversee and lead the operations of the church. They're called, thirdly, to a ministry of prayer. 
In Acts chapter 6, verse 4, the apostle, we are told that the apostles dedicated themselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. It would be natural then to assume that those who came after the apostles, those who took up the leadership after the apostles, would assume the same posture. They would dedicate themselves also to prayer and the ministry of the word. And the last responsibility that the elders have is that of shepherding. Acts 20, 28, in Paul's address to the elders at Ephesus, he says this, keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Hear how God is involved in the calling of these men. He's involved in, in bringing together congregations to pastors and the Holy Spirit has made them overseers. And they are called to be shepherds of the church of God, which he brought with his own blood. The people of God are so valuable to God that he paid for their freedom with his own blood. And he's entrusting the care of them to men who he has called to shepherd their souls. In 1 Peter 5, 1 through 3, Peter says, So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, not to make money off of them, but eagerly, not domineering over those that are in your charge, but being examples to the flock of God. So the picture of a shepherd reinforces that godly authority is not harsh or overbearing or domineering. It is a tender picture of a person who is caring for sheep. He feeds the sheep, the food from God's word. He will go out and seek after the lost sheep, the ones who've wandered away and bring them back into the fold. He's called to bind up the wounded, the injured. He is to strengthen the weak. He guards the sheep, guarding them from false and dangerous teachings and leaders. And he is called to lead them toward their true shepherd, the Lord Jesus Christ. This is an awesome responsibility, is it not? There's a huge weight of responsibility that God has placed on the shoulders of the men he has called to fulfill this role in his church. And they will give an account to God for the way in which they cared for God's people. Hebrews 13:17 says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give account. Those are sobering words. Sobering words. These men are going to give an account to God for the way they carried out his call. This is not an office that should ever be taken lightly. And because of this, God is specific about the qualifications of the men that he would choose to lead. They need to be men who exhibit the godly character of a man who is being shaped by the word of God. These men are to be so devoted and so saturated and so submitted to scripture that when they bleed, 
That's what comes out, scripture. So let's color in our portrait of a leader with a look at the qualifications in 1 Timothy 3, chapter 1, and we're now finally getting to our text. That was all intro. 1 Timothy 3, chapter 1 says, The saying is trustworthy. This underscores that the truth and seriousness of what is to follow. So it's pause, pay attention. What I'm about to say is extremely important. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. If anyone, literally could be translated, if certain persons, and it means not everyone would or could or should pursue the office of overseer, but if someone does, he is aspiring to a noble task. Now, this word aspire is a beautiful word. It means to eagerly desire something. And it's the word that's used in Hebrews 11.6. When um, the writer of Hebrews talks about those in the Old Testament who were longing for this country, a better country, a heavenly country, and they were living by faith while they longed for this heavenly country. And that word for longing is the word for aspire using the same word, used in this text. And this helps us to understand that Paul, his emphasis here, is not purely on an emotional feeling that someone has. Somebody has an emotional feeling like, oh, I want to be a pastor. It's not talking about this. This is not um, about someone desiring advancement or someone who's starry-eyed about this office. But rather, the desire is rooted in the reality of what the position is. It's an enlistment in a duty that is always exacting and most often thankless. So if anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. To aspire to the office of overseer is not a big, good career move or a path of self-fulfillment or about a thirst to have influence or authority over others. It's not about a building a platform. It's not about building a mega church or a mini kingdom. It's rather to be a compulsion in the heart of the individual, put there by the Spirit of God, to be obedient to the call of Jesus. It is a good call. It is a noble task, but it is a somber task. And it is a task that in order to be carried out rightly, This man needs to be a man of God who is a man of faith, not a recent convert, our text tells us, but one who has been tested. And the list of qualifications we find here in 1 Timothy and then again in Titus, it's not an all-encompassing list. It's not a full job description that we would post on our church website. Rather, it's more like, Imagine Paul firing off bullet points to Timothy. Don't forget to look for this, look for this, look for this, look for this quality. Just these bullet points that he doesn't want him to forget. He wants him to prioritize and highlight these. So he begins these qualities with seven desirable qualities that should be in every um, candidate. He talks about four disqualifications and three tests. Look at verse 2 with me. Therefore, so the word therefore points us back to the sobriety and the weight of this calling. Therefore, in light of this, 
An overseer must be, and these are not optional character qualities, he must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach. Let's break that down a little bit. This, This man must be above reproach. Blameless is the literal translation. Not that he is without sin, but what Paul is communicating is that this man must be a man of stellar quality, um, character, free of obvious or provable black marks on his character. So he must be above reproach. He must be a man. It says he must be a husband of one wife. The word that is used in the Greek to describe husband is the word andra, and it's exclusively used for men. It can be translated either an adult male or a husband. But the man does not have to be a husband to be an overseer. The text is not saying that. But if he is a husband, he is to be a one-woman man. He's to be faithful, a faithful husband, faithful to his wife. But in the Greek... I want us to to just reflect for just a moment that the word there is strictly used to describe a male. Now, sometimes in the word of God, sometimes there are different words that are used to talk about men and women. But they're still translated man. I'm going to give you an example. 2 Timothy 3, 16 through 17 says this, All scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. In the Greek, anthropos is the word used for man. And that word is the word for human. And so that could, it could be easily translated um, for training in righteousness that the man or woman of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. It would still be faithful to the text to translate it man or woman. But that's not the case in our passage today. In 1 Timothy 3, when it speaks of the overseer, the word that is used there is used exclusively for men. And so we know that the Greek we know that what Paul is speaking of here is that the the office of pastor, the office of elder, the office of overseer is to be for men only. They're to be above reproach, the husband, one woman man. They're also to be um, sober-minded. Sober-minded. This man should regard his calling and duties with sobriety rather than flippancy. He is to be self-controlled. He should demonstrate self-control rather than being impulsive, a lack of concentration, or distracted behavior. He is to be respectable. The character of the man God calls to be an overseer is to be one that evokes admiration and delight and causes them to be held in high esteem. He is to be hospitable, we're told. Hospitality gets to the heart of God. It goes beyond having people over to your house for dinner. It goes beyond entertainment. To be hospitable is to set a tone of openness and receptivity. It is an opening of your home or, and or your life. 
Hospitable men were men who were always glad to welcome God's servants into their homes without hypocrisy. And he had to be able to teach. We talked about that already. Teaching in conjunction with the exercise of pastoral oversight are the two mainstays of shepherding the flock of God. So these seven character qualities are qualities that must be present in the character of a man who is being considered to be a leader. Verse three goes on to give us four qualities that if present, disqualify this man from office. Verse three says he cannot be a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of more money. These four things actually are, if they're present in the life of a man, are going to reveal that the first seven qualifications are not there. If a man is drunk or violent or quarrelsome and a lover of money, he's lacking in self-control. He doesn't elicit the fruit of the spirit. He's not respectable. He is not sober-minded. And if we see those, if those are seen, or there's evidence of that, those are disqualifications from the office of elder. Even if they've already been installed, that is a disqualification. It reveals a lack of godliness. Paul then goes on to give three tests for the candidate. The first test, he says, look at his family. Verse 4 says, He must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? There is a direct correlation between God's design and order for families and God's design and order for the church, which is his household. There's a direct correlation. The husband is called in scripture to manage, to oversee, to head his household. This is what we were talking about last week when we were talking about the order of creation and how God created Adam first and then Eve and how Satan came in and flipped the order that God created upside down on its head. But God held Adam responsible for the fall. Throughout the the New Testament, throughout Scripture, it's in Adam we all fell, not in Eve. And that's what we're talking about. When we talk about men's responsibility over their own households, they stand before God accountable and responsible for the way in which they lead their families spiritually and the way in which they provide for their families physically. He must manage it well. He is called to manage it well. What does that look like? Scripture, again, makes clear that the management of the household is not abusive. It is not abusive or apathetic, but rather it is to be one of wisdom. A husband is called to love his wife like Christ loved the church. And how did he do that? He laid down his life. He did it sacrificially. So, a test to see if a man is qualified for the office of elder is look at his wife. Look how he treats his wife. Look at his family. Parental authority is also not to be abusive or authoritarian. It's wise and nurturing guidance that will evoke affection and loyalty in return. Look at a man and how he parents his children. 
A man who manages his household well will provide for the needs of his household both physically and spiritually. If a man is not able to manage that well, if he is not faithful in little, how will he ever be entrusted with more, with God's household? So that was the first test to see if a man is qualified. Look at his family. How is he interacting with his family? The second test we find in verse 6 he can, is the test of time. He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Now, there are numerous reasons that a person who is a recent convert should not be considered as a candidate for the office of pastor, regardless of their zeal, regardless of their giftings, And we can be so tempted to put a new believer into a place of authority before they're ready. And to me, when you think about it, it would be like sending a toddler to the front lines of a battleground. It's cruel to do that. It would be tragic. Scripture tells us that he might become puffed up, filled with pride, and fall into condemnation. It would be tragic to put somebody who's not yet ready, not yet trained, not yet tested into a position of authority for them to have a catastrophic fall that would affect their own life, that would affect the life of the church, and that would affect the community around. So wisdom says... He must not be a recent convert. That is the second test. The third test is in verse 7. And it's the test of a consistent reputation. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. Again, the church has a public reputation to uphold. People are watching. People are seeing what is going on. They're watching how our pastors and how we behave (laughs) actually they know we go to church and then they see how we treat people in the community to be thought of well by outsiders is not necessarily that they're going to think well of your doctrine right there if you're going to be faithful to the word of god and you're going to be following this book in your life and you're going to be preaching this and teaching this and living this you're going to be hated they're not going to love you That's what Jesus said. He said, they hated me, they're going to hate you too. But that's not what Paul is talking about here. He is talking about the character of the man. Is his his character consistent with his reputation? Does he walk the walk? Does he talk the talk? Is he, what he's preaching, is he living that in the community? How does he treat the people who are serving in restaurants? Does he belittle them with his attitude? Or is he humble, approachable, kind, and compassionate? A pastor is called to have a consistent reputation in the community as a man who doesn't just preach the word, but he lives the word that he preaches. Okay, we've completed the portrait of the first office, that of the elder and overseer. Let's now paint very quickly the second office, that of the office of deacon. This is a role that is distinct from the office of overseer. They don't overlap. 
let's quickly sketch out the profile of a deacon. It comes from the Greek word diakonos. And the heart of the office of deacon is service. The word diakonos means to serve. So the function of the office of deacon lies within the sphere, sphere of practical service. Now, it's very interesting. There is a lot in Scripture that defines what the responsibilities are of the overseer and the elders. There's a lot. We've, we've addressed many of the verses tonight. However, there's really not much said that defines what it is a deacon is supposed to do. We don't get a list. We don't get a list of jobs. In fact, the one passage of Scripture, I was so surprised by this. In Acts 6, the one passage of Scripture that is traditionally associated with deacons is Acts 6. When, when, do you remember that time early on in the church where they had this issue with the widows? And there was a group of widows that were not being taken care of well. So they weren't handling things well. They were kind of being overlooked. They weren't getting the distribution. So they appointed men to make sure that the distribution went fairly to all the widows. Well, that's traditionally the foundation for what it means to be a deacon. But deacon's not even mentioned in that passage. I went and looked. I was like, it's not? And it's not. So many commentaries believe, commentators believe that this was descriptive of an event that happened in the, church, in the history of the church, but not prescriptive for the office of deacon. So outside of that, we know that there are deacons. They're called deacons. We know that in the text, we see that there's a, an official capacity that they would serve in, but there's also an unofficial capacity because here's the thing. The word deacon means serve. So we are all called to be deacons, all of us, because this is the calling of what it means to be a Christian, to serve one another. And I think that's why there's not a list in the scriptures that tells us what this looks like, because it's whatever needs to be done, whatever needs to be done in the body of Christ, whatever needs to be seen to we willingly serve it, serve. But the deacons do carry with it biblical qualifications, do they not? In verse 8 and following, we are given a picture, a portrait of what a godly deacon is to be like. It says in verse 8, deacons likewise, so just in the same way, that he talked about the qualifications for the elders and how important that was, just like that, deacons must also be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience and let them also be tested first. Then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Verse 11, their wives likewise must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their household well. 
For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. So deacons likewise, just as the men who are called to be overseers in the household of God, they are to be godly men. They are to be men of noble character. They are to be tested first, not put into positions of leadership before they have stood the test of time. They are to prove themselves blameless. They are to exhibit godly character that is visible to others. It says they're not to be double-tongued, which means they're not supposed to say one thing and do and mean another thing altogether. Nor are they to be addicted to wine or greedy. They are to be, like the overseers, faithful in marriage, one-woman men. And they are to manage their household well. These are some of the similarities in the character qualities between the overseer and the deacons. But there are also some distinctions that we see in the text. And there's three specific distinctions that I want to draw out of the text. First of all, teaching is not in the list of qualifications for deacons because deacons are not called to oversee the teaching and the spiritual nourishment of the congregation. They can have the gift of teaching, but it is not a qualification. But even though deacons are not given the responsibility for the teaching of the church, they are still called to a knowledge of the truth. Look at what verse 9 says. It says they must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. The mystery of the faith are the deep truths of Scripture. Whenever Paul refers to the mystery of the gospel, the mystery of the faith, he's most often speaking of the redemptive truths that are revealed when Christ came. So deacons are not just busy serving in a variety of capacities, but they are well-versed in the scriptures and in understanding them and communicating them. So the first, that was the first difference. The second difference is they are called to manage their household well, but they are not given the responsibility to rule God's household. So deacons are not given the authority to rule over the household of God, even though they are still called to manage their family well. And the third distinction is the office of pastor is, exclu is exclusive in Scripture to qualified and called men. But I believe that this text teaches that the office of deacon is open for women. Look with me at verse 11. Verse 11 says, Their wives likewise must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. And when I was reading that, I thought to myself, Huh, I wonder why the deacon's wives are called to be dignified, not slanderers, sober-minded, and faithful, but the overseer's wives were not called to that. I would think it would be equally as important for the overseer's wives to be dignified, right? So that got me thinking. Well, then, got me thinking, got me digging a little deeper. And the word for wives there is also the word for women. So it can be translated a woman, a woman, or it could be translated a wife. Likewise, must be dignified, not slanderers, clear-minded, which means you're not intoxicated, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. So this 
could be translated not necessarily the wives of deacons, but the women who serve as deaconesses. The women who serve in the church as deaconess must be godly, must be women that are dignified. They must not be slanderers. And this actually view in most commentaries actually hold to the view that this is referring to women and not specifically to the deacon's wives. So I love, once again, how the word of God is so beautiful. Once again, we are given the opportunity to see God calling both men and women to use their gifts in his household for the glory of God. We are both male and female image bearers called to be dignified, we're called to be godly, we're called to use our gifts in the service of our king, and this is a noble task. The idea of serving is not a lesser role. The world would have us actually believe that, wouldn't they? The world places uh, value on position. The world would see the position of overseer as a more valuable position than that of a servant. But that's not how God works. God's never been like that. In God's kingdom, in his economy, if you want to be great, what does he say? You learn to be a servant. If you want to be great in God's kingdom, learn to be a servant of all. The pastor is a servant. And he's serving in the role of overseer. And the deacon is a servant, serving in his or her role. Equal in value, different in function. And it's good, because God is good. So the office of deacon is a noble task, and those who serve well in this position, verse 13 says, gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. What is this verse saying? It's saying that if you serve well, sacrificially serving, it results in recognition and in an increase in respect that is needed for effective ministry. People see. People will observe it. They observe faithful and sacrificial service, and you are entrusted with more and more responsibility, is what the text is saying. But the text also says that there is also a gain of confidence. Another word that can be used there in place of confidence is boldness. It would be a gain of boldness in what? In the object of their faith, in the Lord Jesus Christ. As deacons or deaconesses deacon well, there is an increase in abundant boldness in their faith in Christ Jesus, ramping up their level of commitment and service. And there we have it. We have a portrait within the portrait of the church. We have the portrait of the man that God calls to be elder or pastor, and we have the portrait of the man or woman that God is calling to serve in the household of God. Is it not a beautiful portrait? Is this not a beautiful portrait of godly leaders? 
of godly service, all being transformed into godly people through the power of the Holy Spirit and their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. But as we look into the text and as we have looked into this perfect portrait of a leader, of a godly leader, we have to be honest. The reality doesn't always look quite like the perfect portrait, does it? The reality is a bit tarnished. There are smudges and stains, maybe a few paint spills, scars and scratches. So how do we reconcile the reality with the portrait? God has preserved for us this portrait of his desire for the church and those who he has called to lead and care for his people. And remember that the church is made up of the people who have received Jesus Christ as their Lord by faith. They are people who have been given new hearts and new desires and the Holy Spirit to empower them to walk in God's ways. For the people of God, the members of his household, we are being restored into the male and female image bearers that we were created to be. This portrait shows us what we are being restored to. This is what God is making us into. Godly, dignified men and women who are above reproach, blameless, or self-controlled. So as we gaze at the portrait, we do so with humility, seeking to align ourselves with God's good design. So how do we do that? How do we align ourselves with God's good design? How do we align ourselves with this portrait of the church or with godly leaders or godly servants? We do that by lifting our eyes and fixing our gaze on the portrait. The closer we look at the portrait in scripture, that scripture is painting of a godly leader and a godly servant, the more we look at this, the clearer the portrait becomes for us. Look closely at it, and you will see revealed before your very eyes the perfect deacon. Consider Jesus, who did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but rather he emptied himself and he took on the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Looking into the word of God, behold our perfect deacon. And as we look again more closely, we see before our eyes revealed our perfect overseer, the shepherd of our souls. He, Jesus, alone stands blameless and above reproach. He is a faithful husband to his bride, the church, for whom he selflessly laid down his life. He is sober-minded, perfectly self-controlled, and is generously hospitable. He rules his household well, and his bride, the church, gladly submits to him. He is the good shepherd who feeds his sheep from the food of the word. He seeks the lost. He brings back the straying. He binds up the injured, and he strengthens the weak. 
He defends the defenseless. And from his mouth comes truth that will destroy all that is false. As we gaze and keep on gazing at his lovely face in the portrait of his word, and this is where we gaze at Jesus, we gaze at him in his word. And as we continue to do that, this is when a miracle happens for those who are in Christ Jesus and are submitted to him. By the power of the Holy Spirit, our hearts begin to stir with a longing to be like him. As we look at his humble obedience, we are stirred to follow him in obedience. The miracle is this, we become what we behold. 2 Corinthians 3.18 says, and we all with unveiled faces. What that means is the veil, the blinders have been removed from our eyes. And so when we look at the word of God, we can see Jesus. And we all with unveiled faces, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another for this comes from the lord who is the spirit this is how it works this is how we're changed this is how we're changed into the godly women that we are called to be by gazing at jesus our lord our savior through his word and the spirit of god begins to transform our hearts our desires our minds and our lives to look more and more and more like jesus increment by increment by increment this is how our pastors will become more like jesus by beholding him this is how we become more like jesus by beholding him and as we all together pastors and the servants fix our eyes on jesus who is the author and the perfecter of our faith we run with endurance the race that is set before us whatever that race is Whatever that calling is on our life, we run with endurance the race set before us, casting aside every weight and sin that clings so closely to us. We run with endurance, eyes fixed on Jesus, knowing that he who began a good work in us will be faithful to complete it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for what we see in your word about the, the portrait of a godly leader we thank you, Lord Jesus, that you are the living flesh and blood portrait of a godly leader. I pray that we would fix our gaze on you, that we would follow after you, that we would walk in humble submission to you, that we would seek you in the scriptures, and that we would, your spirit would change our lives, change our desires, change our minds, so that we would more and more and more be reflective of you and your glory. We thank you for this word to us. We thank you for the attention to detail that you have put in scripture so that we might know how to navigate in this world. We praise your name. We praise you, O oh Lord, for you are good and you are gracious and you are great. I pray that you would um, go with us as we leave this place. In Jesus' name, amen.